Welcome to our Sunday evening service at Calvary Evangelical Church, Brighton. My name is Jerome and I'm a member here at the church. We are a Christian church and we're an evangelical church, meaning that we love to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are a Bible-based church in that we hold the Bible in high esteem and we see it as God's revelation to us. All that we do here is guided by the Bible and biblical principles. And it's our practice to preach systematically through a Bible book. We're currently going through a series in Matthew, and we're almost coming to the end of this great book. This evening, we'll continue hearing what our Lord has to say through this wonderful gospel. And it's my earnest desire that you would be captivated by the wonder, the beauty, and the goodness of our good doing and sovereign God. Let's start with a prayer for the Lord to bless this time together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and to be together in spirit, although not in person, Lord. And we do pray for your blessing and your presence to be among us. We so need your spirit to uphold us, to guide us, to shape us, Lord. And we're so aware of these times that we're living in, Lord, the turbulence and the uncertainty, all that's going on with this uh, pandemic um, and political issues and the unrest that we see around us, both internationally and nationally, Father. And, oh, Lord, we come before you as our everlasting and unchanging God, stable and certain and true. We praise you, Lord, as our rock and our refuge, a very present help in trouble. And Father, we just consider for a moment what's going on in in America at this time, Lord. We we pray um, particularly for the transition of power in that nation, Lord God, and we pray that that transition would be peaceful, Lord, and it would be smooth. And we pray that your hand of blessing would be upon that nation. And I pray for the church in America, Father, that the church would respect and honour civil government as is so clearly set forth and commanded in your word. But I also pray that the church would be able to preach the full counsel of God freely, without restraint, Lord God. And that the church would also be able to be a prophetic voice when needed in that nation. I pray, Father, for the civil unrest and all the violence and turbulence that we see and hear of. Oh Lord, we do pray for unity where there is disunity. We pray for peace where there's violence. We pray for understanding and humility and listening. And Lord, we just pray, Heavenly Father, for your hand to be upon your church in that nation. We pray for ourselves, Father. We pray for the United Kingdom at this time. In the midst of another lockdown due to the pandemic. Father, I pray for our government. Would you please, Lord, um, give our government the power and the wisdom to be judicious. To be balanced. To be proportionate in terms of how they approach this, this pandemic. Father, I pray that they would have an holistic view of people's needs, Lord, and 
will take into consideration not only the uh, physical and medical needs of this nation, Lord, but will consider the spiritual needs of this nation. Father, we do pray for the whole matter of a vaccine. We are grateful for that, Lord. And we pray that you would sovereignly um, govern and rule over all that is happening in that area to progress that work, Lord God. Oh, Lord, we are aware of your displeasure with us, for we have sinned as a nation. We have largely turned our back on you, Lord. There is little regard for you and the things of you, Lord God. But Lord, we do pray for your mercy at this time. We do believe that you are sovereign over this pandemic, Father, and we pray that you would bring this pandemic to an end and that you would spare us in your mercy. Lord, we pray for those particularly who have been affected, those who have lost loved ones, those who are economically insecure, those who are fearful and anxious. Draw near to them, Father, and do comfort them at this very difficult time, Lord. And Father, we do commit the church to you, the church in this nation that has been closed down largely for much of the last few months and certainly is at this time. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would bring an end to the churches being closed and that we would be able to open our doors once again and your people would be able to gather in person and worship you, the living God. I pray for the FIEC and I pray for the work that John Stevens is doing and the, uh, uh, the conversations he is having with the government, Father. I pray that you would bless those discussions and conversations and I pray that the government would see fit to have your churches opening. Please strengthen your people, strengthen your church, and I pray the gospel would be proclaimed this day and would go out and that people would be changed and would be saved and see the greatness and the majesty of you, the living God, and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, let's sing our first hymn this evening. See what a morning. Master, the Lord, praise to life. 
Our scripture reading this evening is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. So that's Matthew 28, 1 to 10. And I'll be reading from the ESV version. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake... For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See how I told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And may God add his blessing to his holy word. Let's pray for the word as it's preached this evening. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we ask for your help as your word is proclaimed. We need you so much. We need the power of your spirit to unlock this word, to make it clear to us, to take this word and enable it to impact our head, our heart and our hands, Lord. Pray, Father, that you would open our eyes and that we would see wondrous things in your word and that we would be changed by it. May I decrease and may you increase. And we pray these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen. As we approach this magnificent and well-known passage, it's clear that the central theme is the glorious doctrine of the resurrection. 
And the resurrection, it's not only the central theme of this passage, but it's of central importance to the Christian faith. And the very gospel itself hinges on this doctrine. Now, the passage before us tells us how the early believers came to know of the resurrection and the comfort, the fear, and the joy that this brought to them. The resurrection is of such importance that our entire system of belief would crumble if it were not true. Now, that sounds dramatic, but we would literally be better off packing up our bags, shutting down the church, and rethinking our whole spiritual lives if the resurrection of our blessed Lord and Saviour did not happen. Now, the death of any mere founder of a religion or a philosophical system, I think, of Islam or Buddhism or Marxism doesn't have the same impact. But Christ was not a founder of a religion. He's the central focal point of Christianity. He is the one in whom redemption, salvation, and eternal glory is found. Christ is Christianity. We would have no risen saviour who had conquered sin in the grave. He wouldn't be vindicated or verified as the saviour. He would just be another dead prophet. A good and well-meaning man that died for a cause. He wouldn't be the provider of atonement, justification, sanctification. His words would not be credible as he foretold in several places his resurrection and we would still be in our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14 onwards says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So people of God, if the resurrection is not true and didn't happen, we of most people are to be pitied. If you think of much of the book of Acts as an example, the preaching of Peter and the preaching of Paul, they're seeking to persuade their hearers about the veracity, the truthfulness, the historicity of the resurrection. It's set forth again and again as a cardinal and central doctrine of the Christian faith. The bodily resurrection of our Saviour is an historical fact. The New Testament proclaims that he was raised bodily and now has a real glorified body which was raised on the third day. That is very, very clearly set forth in the scriptures. And as, as we look at this account, I want, to, want us to follow the passage under three main points. My first point, an awesome encounter. Secondly, a glorious declaration. And thirdly, a joyful commission. 
So my first point, an awesome encounter, that's verses 1 to 4. Christ's disciples, they were grief-stricken. They were dejected. They were demoralized, having gone through the trauma of their Lord's crucifixion. They were now feeling confused about how the kingdom of God would advance. After such great loss, and their faith was shattered. If you put yourself in their shoes, their their hopes and their dreams for the future were seemingly dashed. And the sense of disappointment must have been so palpable and so real for them. And it's out of this context that these these God-fearing women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they had waited until after the Sabbath, as was the Jewish custom, before they attended the tomb. And this was on the first day of the week or the third day since his death and burial. Now, this is why we as Christians, we worship on a Sunday and not a Saturday. You you may wonder, why is this called in other places the third day? Well, the way we perceive the time and days, we we see days as 24-hour cycles, but it was different in the Jewish calendar. Days were counted even if they weren't full 24-hour cycles. So, for example, Friday evening would still be counted as a day. Sunday morning would still be counted as a day. So what were these godly women, what were they looking to do? What were they hoping to do? Well, they were going to the tomb to attend to the body. The Gospel of Mark states that they were going to anoint Christ. And this is likely to have been an anointing of his head, as his body had previously been anointed by uh, Joseph and Nicodemus. The Gospel of Luke states that they were taking spices that they had prepared. Now, I think it's, it's significant that they are women that are the first to discover the empty tomb. Jewish law and, and just the broader society at that time would not have seen women or deemed women as a credible witness But the women, these women, they have a prominent and they have a significant place in redemptive history at a time when women were greatly undervalued. The Puritan commentator David Dixon comments that the women were honoured with being the first to carry joyful tidings to the scattered apostles. What a place of honour in the kingdom these godly women have. Now, verse 2 states that if you want to... Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. This was an awesome and frightening encounter. Now, we need to be careful that we... uh, we don't bring to mind very familiar accounts um, that we recall from sentimental and unbiblical images that we may have got from our, our children's Bible story books, um, de- depicting a nice, uh, chubby-faced, unthreatening, robed person sitting on a stone, glowing warmly, very affable, very inviting. This is more like a blazing, dazzling, blinding, terrifying angelic being. This is similar to what we see in the Old Testament prophetical books. Uh, if you bring to mind Daniel or Ezekiel, the kind, of, the kind of vision that left the prophets falling on their faces and impacted for days afterwards. 
This angel is a mighty and terrifying witness to the resurrection. His appearance being like lightning describes intense brightness. Lightning's not a soft and cuddly thing, but it's frightening, it's awesome, it's striking, it evokes fear and awe. The angel strikes such fear in the guards that they tremble and they become like dead men. So let's remove from our minds any kind of sentimental images of this awesome scene. Now, the angelic visitor has been assigned for the specific task of witnessing and declaring the glorious news of the resurrection. I like what J.C. Ryle says here. He comments on this stating that a glorious angel witnesses of his rising and glorious angels shall gather believers when they rise again. The earthquake denotes something of great majesty and power about to take place. It's similar to the earth shaking and the rock splitting back in chapter 27 in verse 51. So here we see this earth shaking seismic event. The earth quakes, the guards tremble. Some commentators see this as a symbol of the majesty of Christ and a prelude of the general resurrection at the end of time. The angel then rolls back this huge disc-like stone that seals the entrance to the tomb. Now, rolling back the stone wasn't about enabling Jesus to leave the tomb. He had a resurrected and glorified body. He could walk through walls. No, the rolling back the stone was to enable the women and disciples as witnesses to enter the tomb so they can witness that the tomb is, in fact, empty. In Luke 24, it states that they entered the tomb and they did not find the body and they were feeling perplexed while encountering two angelic beings. The Gospel of Mark states that they were alarmed to see an angelic being upon entering the tomb. In John 20, it states they initially thought the body was stolen. So these, these women were clearly confused they, they didn't understand what was happening. There was a level of perplexity and not understanding. They, they had no reference to the resurrection at this point until the angel declared it to them, giving an interpretation and giving meaning to what had just happened. So I come to my second point, a glorious declaration. And I think here we come to the central and pivotal part of the text. These are some of the most wonderful verses in the whole of the New Testament. The angel's declaration to the women it includes words of great comfort, great consolation, and reassurance. Do not be afraid. How, how many times in the Bible do we read those words you think of in the Old Testament? Books like Joshua and Deuteronomy and Isaiah. Fear not, do not be afraid. These precious words to his beleaguered and troubled people are such a source of comfort. And often when we read in the scriptures the words, don't be afraid, they're followed by God's comforting acts on behalf of his people and his presence. And these words of the angel must have brought great comfort and assurance to the women. Now, if you, if you read carefully, the angel, angel speaks words of reassurance and affirmation where, where, where he says, 
I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. I know you seek Jesus. God knows and he sees their seeking and he sees our seeking. He sees their seeking hearts and their desire to attend to their Lord and their Savior. Do not be afraid because I know. These words of reassurance say something of God's recognition of their act of worship, their act of reverence, their act of honor, going to attend to the body. And God knows and he sees our acts of reverence, of honor and worship. And he is pleased with our seeking. As true believers, we needn't be afraid as we seek the Lord. We then have this glorious declaration in verse 6. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. As he said. Easy to miss this. Easy just to read over that. But in those three, three little words, as he said, said, there's so much there. We see the fulfillment of what Christ foretold concerning his own resurrection. If you turn back to Matthew 12.40, Matthew 12.40, where the scribes and Pharisees ask Jesus, they're asking Jesus for a sign. Jesus said, he speaks of the sign of Jonah. Um, A mysterious text in many ways. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. Obviously, he's foretelling his greatness, but also his resurrection. Matthew 17, 22. He says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Very clear, very specific foretelling his resurrection. Clear to us in retrospect. Wasn't clear to them then, because they were greatly distressed they didn't fully understand. Matthew twenty nineteen, And they will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Here he foretells his death a third time, just in the Gospel of Matthew. Remember in John 2.18, that, that time when Jesus cleanses the temple and the Jews say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Christ's word is trustworthy. His word is certain. His word is reliable as he said. In verse 6 where the angels say, come see the place where he lay, he's appealing to their senses He's emphasizing that this is a physical reality. Despite seeing this, it took them some time to grasp the immensity of what happened. Now, it's actually later when they see him and then they touch him. In John 20, 17, Jesus says, do not cling to me. And here in Matthew 28, later in verse 9, it says that they took hold of his feet. Now, Christ is not risen as some kind of phantom. Or as some have tried to argue that this was some kind of collective hallucination. But he is risen as a physical human being. 
Yes, in a glorified body, but a body that can be both seen and a body that can be touched. We, we, we think of the encounter Jesus had with Thomas later in John 20, 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I thought of uh, 1 John 1, that little epistle, 1 John, at the beginning where it says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have heard, which, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. We consider then these three glorious words, one of the most outstanding declarations in the whole of Scripture. He is risen. He is risen. Why is this so important? Why is this so central? Well, we do do well to remember the historicity of the resurrection. But what does it mean theologically? What does it mean for us as believers? Well, Christ's resurrection was necessary Because firstly, his resurrection evidenced his complete victory over death. Christ is the life. He is life in its fullness. His resurrection is a pledge that the curse is removed from his people and silenced forever. His resurrection was demanded by virtue of his divine nature as the Son of God. He is the author of life itself. It was not possible for him to be overcome by death. His resurrection confirmed that he had made satisfaction for sin by sacrificing himself on the cross. And what I mean by that, satisfaction for sin, he satisfied the wrath of God that was poured out on him upon the cross as he was crucified in our place. His resurrection is the validation of his work on the cross. It is God's endorsement that the atonement has been fully achieved. The resurrection is Christ's acquittal. He's been released from the prison of death. By his resurrection, he could apply the advantages and benefits of his sacrificial works to every believer, to you, to me, as a risen and exalted saviour. Christ rose as a public person, meaning he was a representative person like Adam. He's standing in our place, not only in his death, not only in his cross work, but he's standing in our place in his resurrection. That's why we read in the Bible passages that seem strange at first because it says, the Bible says things like of us dying and rising with him. But this is of great comfort to us as we have this newness of life and we're born again as new creations in union with Christ. Believers have been raised from spiritual death and raised up into spiritual life. When Christ rose from the dead, we rose from the dead with him. The Bible states this in several places and these are beautiful texts. Ephesians 2, 5 to 6 And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Romans 6, 5. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Romans 6, 8. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The comforts flowing from the resurrection are many. His resurrection discloses the church's glorious resurrection. His resurrection is a pledge and an assurance of the resurrection of his bride, the church. His acquittal, his release from death is the guarantee or pledge of our acquittal and our release from death. By his resurrection, his entire church is justified. The resurrection is a pledge that God and sinners, we are now reconciled with God. That is good news. The greatest enemy, death, is defeated. Therefore, we needn't fear death or life. And beloved, this this demands resurrection change in our lives. Since we are new creations in Christ, our view of life must be radically changed from how we were before. Yes, we still have ongoing indwelling sin, but yet we are changing and we have been changed. The way we think, the belief systems that we have, the behaviours, the attitudes, the choices, the habits, they must be impacted by this resurrection. We need to be seeking the things above, setting our affections on things above. Thinking upon the things above. Thinking of Christ and his work. As I was preparing this, I was thinking of all the distractions that we have at this time. The whole coronavirus pandemic. um, The presidential election that has just flooded the news of late. And it's so easy to be distracted at this time. And to be seeking the things below. But what is the focus of your hope? Is the focus of your hope the, uh, the vaccine? And the vaccine is a good thing and a right thing, and we should be praying earnestly for that. Is it, is it for a president? Or is it this resurrection hope? Are you seeking the things above? The declaration, he is risen, is also confirmation that we have the certain prospect of the future bodily resurrection as well. The dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. I think of my own body. Lately, I'm more aware of weakness, um, tiredness, kind of the decay setting in, um, a lack of vigor. I went to get my eyes tested just last week and every time I go and get my eyes tested they've deteriorated again another year goes by and there's this sense that everything's winding down but the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed my third point a joyful commission Verses 7 to 10 detail the sending out of the women by the angel to tell the disciples the glad tidings of the resurrection. 
these verses, they're pregnant with a sense of urgency, of joy, and of reverential fear. The angel has carried out his task, and the focus now shifts to the women carrying out their task and having an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus while seeking to fulfill this urgent commission. Verse 8 states that they departed from the tomb with fear and great joy to tell the disciples. The intensity of the situation is almost palpable. Imagine their joy. But they're experiencing fear and joy, seemingly very different emotions. Now, in the Bible, fear and joy can, can be emotions that accompany one another. Believers can experience these mixed affections of fear and joy. And, and although, although the Greek word for fear, it can mean terror or alarm, it also can mean a reverential respect or awe. This is a fear that delights in the majesty and holiness and the otherness of God. Now, we struggle, I think, we struggle to conceptualize this in our culture. I think in our culture, things tend to be very casual. Um, Things tend to be flippant. Things are frivolous and and, and familiar. And and we've, we've lost that sense of otherness. We've lost that sense of sacredness. When Jesus met them, he said, greetings. I think in the authorised version it says hail, which seems quite strange. But the word greetings, which literally means to rejoice or be glad. They took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. It's interesting to me how Christ is worshipped here. And in verse 17, if you drop down in verse 17, when his disciples saw him, while some doubted, they worshipped him. Now the word of God is very clear that the only being worthy of worship, of our worship, is God. But we can worship Christ because he is God as the second person of the Trinity, one in essence with God. Now, if you recall in the book of Revelation, in, in 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 10, John has this amazing vision of an angel. And he says, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. As awesome and as radiant as an angel is, you're not to worship angels. They're not God. Now, one of the most glorious visions of worship in the whole of Scripture has to be in Revelation 5, 11 to 14. And we see the Lamb is at the center. I, I must read this. It's so glorious. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. We see here how the whole creation worships the crucified and risen Lord Jesus because he is worthy. So it was wholly appropriate for these women to give their adoration and worship to Jesus. And Jesus, like the angel, he speaks words of comfort, those words again, do not be afraid. This must have been further confirmation and comfort to them as he calms their fears. They heard this from the angel and now from Christ himself. Jesus then commands them to go and tell my brothers, go to Galilee, and there they will see me. He uses the words brothers, brethren, his weak, his frail little flock of disciples. They're precious to him, and they're called brothers. This is an intimate and tender term for his disciples. It shows much grace, because remember, they previously deserted him. Now, the word brothers may be addressing his disciples in a narrower sense, or it may have a wider scope, including a whole range of believers. It's interesting that in Luke, Luke states that they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. I like to think that it does have a broader scope, and I like to think it includes us as his brethren, his brothers. I I thought of how Christ is uh, so wonderfully called our older brother in the book of Hebrews. He says to go tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. What's the significance of that? Well, throughout Matthew, Galilee has been the central location of Jesus's earthly ministry. If you recall, Galilee is is the most northern part of Israel, just just above um, Samaria. And by meeting the eleven on the mountain of Galilee post-resurrection, this will be the starting point of the news of the resurrection going out to Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews. Isaiah 9.1 speaks of Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee had a large Jewish population, but the majority of the people were Gentiles. And we, as Gentiles, mainly We've been the recipients of this news. People of God, are we living in the deep assurance and joy of this resurrection news as it has come to us? Does it animate us? Well, joy can wane, particularly in stressful times. And I think all of us, if we're honest, That sense of joy can wax cold, it can come and go. But the joy we're speaking of here is a deep, deep joy. It's not a worldly joy. This is an enduring joy that isn't frivolous. And it's not rooted and based in our feelings or our circumstances. It's a resurrection joy. Well, you may ask, how do I get this joy? How do I have this joy? How do I keep this joy? May our minds be fixed and stayed on him. 
May we trust, believe and look to Christ. Not the distractions around us. Now we may and we will suffer in this life. Sickness, sorrow, weakness of body and mind. But we can say with confidence, he is risen. The tomb is empty and take to heart the words of our saviour. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Amen. Amen. And that brings us to the end of the sermon. Our closing hymn this evening is Low in the Grave He Lay. Triumph for his foes He rose up Picked upon 